2: Get yours in Coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.
1: It's been another busy news week, and we like to review the major news stories of the week here on the Black Information Network. Today, we are joined by Black Information Network news anchors Rahman Johnson and Nia Clark to discuss this week's major stories. This is our daily story, and I'm your host, Ramses Ja. All right. So our first headline of the week. Two Oklahoma officers were charged in the death of Quadri Sanders. Rahman, why not start us off? Give us your thoughts.
0: Quite interesting story. Quadri Sanders was uh, killed at home uh, when Lawton police officers responded to a call in in violation about a man with a protective order. But the thing that we're going deeper in this story is because when the officers arrived at the house, um, they learned that Mr. Sanders was there, wouldn't let someone leave. But the more you look into it... uh, He was seen going out the back door of the house. The officer gave a command to show his hands. He complied with the command, but then he was shot and the Mm -hmm. officers were shooting him over and over again. And according to the records, he was shot multiple times, even with his hands above his head. So as they are doing an investigation, the question is, why were these officers firing? I mean, there were multiple shots, um, why were the officers firing over and over? One of the officers, officer Hinkle fired seven times officer Ronan fired another four times. Why were they continuing to the fire? Especially if he was complying with what they were saying.
2: And it also seems uh, rockman like he was turned. His back was turned towards officers when the first shots were fired as if he was going back into the front door of his home as well, but his hands were still above his head in the air. And it's not clear what was going on. We know there was some sort of protective order that was in place as well. Um, questions about whether or not he was restraining a resident of the home or a person inside of the home. Uh, but nevertheless, as you mentioned, his, his he was complying with officers' orders and was unarmed. Apparently, the only thing that could be seen in his hand was a baseball cap. Um, and that's it.
0: And so with the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation investigating and the autopsy report showing that the shooting was not justified, uh, there still is the the officers. I mean, obviously, that has to go through a court of law, but they haven't said why. But this is something that is continuing to plague itself over and over again. I was talking to uh, attorney Ben Crump's office earlier today, and that was one of the things that they're saying. It's not that. This thing is happening more often. It's that now we have more evidence of it, and people are seeing it more. And so the question is, what are communities going to do to ensure that they're kept safe from this kind of action? Because it's not something; it's becoming more of the uh, the rule as opposed to the exception. You know, there's something about this story that, um, and
1: stories like this that trouble me. Uh, what we have is. Two officers that are charged but they're charged with manslaughter as opposed to murder right and you know any charge at all is is something because a lot of times we'll see that you know there there will be no consequences you know this is part of the reason why the the, the phrase black life black lives matter was born in 2012 because of a lack of accountability a lack of consequences and you know, the, the overall treatment by the criminal justice system of black bodies as disposable. Um, and you can just kind of murder or harm bl- black bodies with, with impunity. Um, so to see that there were charges brought up is, is not nothing. I'll see that entirely. But to know that the charges were manslaughter charges when on the video. We can see that this was no accident. Manslaughter, in my estimation, implies that it was accidental. Um, We see from the officer's perspective exactly what happens. Um, I think that it shows that, you know, there's a lot more that needs to be reformed before we get to a a point where policing and and that branch of the criminal justice system is as blind as the criminal justice system overall is supposed to be. Because um, it's hard to imagine that if Quadri Sanders was a 26-year-old white woman, that we'd be watching the same video. Um, and so it's hard to say that justice is blind. Now, I do talk about this on my, my other show, Civic Cypher. I have a, a full story about it. Um, but here, it's just kind of one of those things that kind of eats at me a bit. And um, I do want to mention, because I don't believe that it's been mentioned uh, enough, uh, when, when, when at least I have, you know, personal feelings about the way policing is done, I'm talking about the institution of policing. I'm not talking about the human beings. And this is a great example of that because one of the officers who shot Quadri Sanders was black himself, um, and it, I think that that points to more to an institutional issue rather than you know police uh, individual police officers. You know, and, and both of these guys were college educated, so you know, for folks that make the argument. Officers need to be more educated. We need to pay more. We need to get get better quality people. No, even their own, um, I believe it was their defense attorney uh, says, you know, these both are fine officers. They have great records, blah, blah, blah. So, okay, if they're great officers, they're both college educated, then what really is the problem? Why is this man dead? Um, He walked out of the house, you know, even if he Did have a gun. It's not illegal to have a gun, but he did not have a gun on his person at the time. And he was shot. I believe it was 12 times of the 14 shots struck him. He died. um, And he's no longer that that life was extinguished by two people who are now being charged for manslaughter when we clearly saw, at least in my estimation,
0: a murder. It's more of a power dynamic, as you said. It's it's less of, as you said, one of the officers was African American. It's a power thing, and we find more often than not. Um, I, I the number of stories that I've been reporting lately, when people were saying if they would have just complied,
1: <laughs>
0: and and it, it's a power thing. We just watched a girl full, a, a bus full of girls, lacrosse players, sure. questioned where is the weed? Like the yeah. they they were indicted before. They even, and obviously they're still investigating the case, but uh, even the attorney general, we just found out, I know this came out and it's kind of moving to another story, but uh, the attorney general uh, of, of Delaware is, is looking into the case with those Georgia officers because it was just egregious. And it goes back to it. There is a power dynamic that people who, and, and I'm not placing an indictment on the police force, but covering these stories on a daily basis. We see that instead of an empathy, which we think the people that are there to protect and serve are supposed to have, we see more of a do what I say and we'll figure it out later. And I think that's the incorrect way to go about uh, creating a space where not only people are protected, but that they feel safe. Well said.
2: I think also that we're talking about different scenarios and situations for different police departments. So You're right. In some instances, it's a power issue. A lot of times when we see cases, though, with, for example, predominantly white police departments, and we hear stories or allegations about systemic racism within the police department, that's indicative of a culture, Mm -hmm. right, of discrimination within the, the police department. Here, we have a situation where, as you mentioned, one of these officers is African-American himself. So this may not be a cultural issue in the department. This may be an issue of, like you said, training. What's really eye-opening is that all of this occurred after the George Floyd phenomena swept across the country. We're talking about 2021. This was not 2019. This is not 2018. This is not 2017. This was in 2021 after the so-called racial reckoning that America was supposed to have had. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is being done in light of the response from not just people in America, but all over the world to the uh, overuse of force? And then the other question I have is, why 12 shots? We see in other countries that officers in other countries are able to disarm suspects without guns. So even if you were going to use a gun to disarm the suspect who was unarmed, but if you were under the impression, as I think the officers said they were, that the suspect was armed, why not one shot? And then why shoot to kill so I interviewed a, law, a former law enforcement officer several years ago who does firearms training and is an expert in this area. And he informed me that a lot of times when officers are trained, they're trained to continue shooting round after round after round after round. And that's a problem. And he, as a former law enforcement officer, who was not black, who was not black himself, he admitted that is part of the issue is the training, the relationship that officers are taught to have with their guns. You
1: no, know, there's something interesting there because, um, you know, to your point, there's a lot of folks that believe that better trained officers will make the difference. You know, this is an argument that persists. I call it a zombie because it just won't die. Um, and we learned from Kim Potter, another person who fortunately was charged. Unfortunately, she what got what I believe to be a slap on the wrist for um, uh, executing Dante Wright on the side of the road there. Um, but she was not only well-trained, she was responsible for the training, um, of the other officers. And so this argument, and then we see officers are well-trained. There's been more training and more training over the years of police officers, and yet we still see this um, happening, particularly particularly to black and brown people. Um, so that's another myth that persists, that training somehow makes a difference, or, or education, or, or uh, cognitive bias training, or sensitivity, those sorts of things. And I think to your point, Nia, there's something going on with the culture where training is not impacted in in a meaningful way, or at least meaningful enough to satisfy us and our community because we keep experiencing the same hurt. We keep reliving the same traumas. Um, You know, these are not perhaps family members, but they are part of our extended family for us to watch Quadri Sanders get executed i'm sure that we all felt something a little bit more personal than just the average viewer you know if we're black you know and we see this happen then you know it's not too far uh, off from us ha- from happening to us or in our family and it creates this idea that you know the world hates us you know what i mean I, I, this is and this is not true for everyone but i've kind of come up against that a couple of times and you know speaking of which there is this culture it, within policing, that kind of contradicts the narrative that the country has about them. And I find this to be um, infuriating because you can't have it both ways. In other words, the police can't be scared, right? They, they, I was, I feared for my life. He had something in his hand. I couldn't, I didn't have time to make out that it was a cell phone or in this case, a ball cap, you know? Um, And I shot because I was afraid for my life. I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. And it's hard to think when you're afraid. And the training, I took all the training, but I was afraid and you never know until you're in the moment, I was afraid. And then there's this narrative that exists that these guys are heroes. They're brave. They're the first responders. And again, I'm not anti-police. I know it sounds that way, but I do recognize that in order to push police and all institutions indeed, to be better than what they are today, which is fair, I want to be better than I was yesterday, I want to be better than I am today, right? That we need to be critical, especially in places where there's a loss of life. And when we can see systemic (laughs) loss of life, you know, uh, then we probably need to be critical of those institutions. And so, um, things like this just kind of bring it to the forefront for me. Um, but, you know, we've spent enough time talking about this. This is just a recap, so we'll move on. Um, Roe v. Wade also was in the headlines uh, with the Supreme Court um, on, the, on the brink of striking down this uh, landmark decision that's been law for the better part of 50 years in this country. So, Nia, why don't you give us your thoughts on, on what you've been reporting so far this week?
2: Well, what was striking to me initially within 24 hours after the news, less than 24 hours after the news broke, was the wave of various sentiments that swept across the country. I would almost say erupted right out of communities, people pouring into the streets to protest, kind of like we haven't seen, you know, in recent months. And I don't, know what the calculation was of the person who released the draft uh, but it is clear that it has certainly changed the political landscape currently and potentially uh, will impact the upcoming midterm elections that said it is also pretty interesting because just today i reported on a story about spain set to consider legislation to expand abortion rights, whereas here in the United States, our Supreme Court is potentially poised to uh, do away with rights that you said have been uh, our rights for the better part of half of a century. Mm -hmm. And I wondered what people outside of the United States are thinking about what is happening in the United States Mm. as we start to see not just even abortion uh, become an issue that shows how nothing is guaranteed. None of our civil liberties are guaranteed. It it almost seems as if they're always er open to the interpretation of whoever sits on the court. And we've heard from some lawmakers that, They'll start with abortion and then they'll start rolling back what have historically been seen as more liberal or progressive laws.
1: Interracial marriage is what I heard would be absurd. (laughs) Yeah, gay
2: marriage, interracial
1: marriage marriage,
2: those sort of things. So it is interesting. Is it a foreshadowing of other rolling back of laws to come or is it going to just be this issue and where do where whereas america was once seen i think as a beacon of hope for a lot of people who subscribe to you know i guess pro-choice ideology but also just of expansion of rights i wonder if other parts of the world are seeing us And our laws contract as opposed to expand.
0: I think as well, Nia, when you when you look at it, I kind of come at at it from a different point of view. Clearly, we all want to know who the leaker was, uh, who who the deep throat of the Supreme Court is so that we Mm -hmm. can have some context um, and to to see why they actually did it. Um, And and of course, that the Secret Service uh, has not the Secret Service that are charged usually with protecting the court are now doing something they're not used to and that's doing an investigation. So I'm just curious to see if they'll even find who the individual was. But I'm looking at this from another point of view. Um, it's so interesting how conservatives have spent a lot of time and I'm not gonna come down on either side of the fence. I'm, I'm being as objective as I can, but conservatives have talked so much about judicial activism. And they talk about, you know, judges aren't supposed to make the law and there's gotta be, act, you know, these are activist judges. And in people's want to become members of uh, the uh, sit on the federal bench or to be a member of the Supreme Court, it's almost this pick me. I'll do what you say. And they lobby for it with these, um, you know, here is are my beliefs on the issues like this. And, you know, when you look back, I saw a great report as I was doing some research the other day when uh, most of the Supreme Court nominees, including Justice Thomas, talked about established precedent and about not wanting to overturn established precedent. And that has completely gone out the window. And so that's the one thing that supposedly enshrined is the the lack of judicial uh, activism. And it seems as though, for whatever reason, the conservatives are feeling that they must find ways to be active. And, and this is, again, as you said, Nia, um, and as we discussed, a slippery slope. Because if you start with Telling a woman what she can or cannot do with her body. Then it goes into telling whomever what they cannot do, not can or cannot do, not just with their body, but in their lives, with their children. And it's really a slippery slope that does not allow us to protect the true freedoms that America is supposed to enjoy.
1: Black Information Network news anchors Rahman Johnson and Nia Clark are here with us discussing this week's major stories. All right. We have a headline here, ABC News' new study sheds light on the 2022 cost of living crisis, living wage out of reach for many Americans. So uh, inflation is continuing to rise, it looks like. So Rahman, talk to us. Let us know what's going on.
0: Well, I mean, the the stories that I've covered, uh, one of the things that are are coming to bear, uh, we talked earlier, of course, about the abortion situation and and being that this is the Black Information Network and we talk about things that are indicative uh, to the Black community. Um, I will say that that black people have been working to help each other uh, mm-hmm. in the abortion debate. Uh, I did a story about black women uh, who were coming together to help other black women get to resources that can help them take care of their pregnancies or, or to, to help them with whatever reproductive health issues they were having, despite issues in the laws that were coming down on the state on the inflation side, the same thing is happening. There are community gardens and food banks that are popping up. Mm. But what we understand for sure is that disproportionately African-American people are being affected when it comes to uh, these kind of things that are happening. They're disproportionately affecting communities of color. I read a story earlier today where in most communities, 90 percent of these communities across the country, African-Americans cannot afford to own homes in a community. And it kind of goes back to, it's not that people are saying, oh, I don't want you to live near me. I, you know, I don't mind my community being integrated and I don't mind you living in my community. But the question is, economically, can you afford to live in those communities? When you look at places that aren't paying living wages, as opposed to uh, the minimum wage, you got states that are blocking minimum wages for people and the price and cost of things are going up whether it be childcare or clothing or whatever the case may be food basic necessities so the good thing that is happening is that the communities as we have done for years and years i mean i was i was lecturing to a group recently and we were having a conversation talking about the the means that uh, african american people had to go through to survive uh, things like hogs hogshead cheese and and chitlins and and you know, things that were scrap meat that people of color, because they weren't given anything else, used to create a delicacy. You see that in a different way happening today with these community gardens and food banks and especially uh, churches are are coming together to help people with each other. But we've got to do something even more as a country to ensure that people have the option to actually live. I had another conversation. I'll leave it on this one. This gentleman was saying in in the city of Atlanta, this was the person that worked for the Atlanta police department. Some of the uh, assistants in the police department were on food stamps to take care of their children. Wow. And that brings it home. And, and the, the way that these people were able to get better wages is because they were embarrassed. They had to be embarrassed. The leaders of this particular department in one of the uh, outlying counties uh, around Atlanta. But this particular department had to be embarrassed to up the wages because their people that they were taking care of, that were working for them every day, had to be on food stamps. Not because they wanted to, as people would say, ball out of control or have everything. They just <laughs> wanted to feed their families. Sure.
2: I think it is noteworthy that this news is coming and we're having this discussion as two uh, potentially Black Federal Reserve uh, Board of Governors may serve simultaneously uh, on the Fed board. So we know that Lisa Cook was just confirmed. uh, And now we have news that uh, the U.S. Senate has voted overwhelmingly also to confirm Philip Jefferson, both economists, both Black. And I'm wondering, because the argument for a lot of supporters of Cook was that she can bring perspective to the Fed that was not previously there based on not only her own experience as a Black woman, but years studying economics, and also how they impact Black people. So I wonder if having these two new uh, Black members of the Fed, Board of Governors, will impact policy, economic policy, that will in turn positively impact Black communities. When we talk about economic policy, inflation, so on and so forth, absent from the conversation often are the mechanisms that are literally built in to a policy from the federal level to the very local level uh, that have worked to disenfranchise and to dispossess and to disadvantage black people for decades. And so, yes, a lot of, you know, what if what is happening currently with the economy is exacerbating pre-existing economic conditions that Black communities have been facing for years? I live in Queens, New York. Uh, not far from me is an area, a predominantly Black area. And in fact, this area, and at least one time, had the largest number of Black homeowners in the country. Mm. That's a lot, right? It's a lot of Black homeowners. But what happened during the recession? So many of them lost their home because we then learned they were victims of predatory lending. And so when we look at current economic policy and current economic conditions, it's important that we also look at historical factors that are then being exacerbated by current conditions and demand that our lawmakers and our policy makers write legislation that addresses all of that, right? Because it is one thing, you know, to uh, release reserves of, of petrol or gas. You know, it's one thing to release reserve to to ramp up production of baby formula. You know, it's all of these things. It's one thing to subsidize, you know, uh, farmers. You know, to keep the costs of certain goods down because of current economic conditions. But if we're not addressing historical economic conditions where inequities have been the downfall of black communities for, for many, many years, then it's all for naught.
1: I appreciate you saying that. And, and speaking of the uh, baby formula shortage, this is our, our final headline for this episode. So the White House is working 24 seven to address the supply crunch uh, a baby formula. Um, and it has dropped 40% since April. So um, let's talk a little bit more about that. Nina, you first.
2: What a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> what an absolute nightmare uh, for for mothers, for parents across the country. My heart breaks, honestly, especially because When you're a mom and a mom of a newborn, you know, you're already trying to hold it together. Um, The last thing you need is to be wasting a whole tank of gas in your car searching for baby formula, which is what we've been reporting on here at the Black Information Network. You know, mothers who have gone above and beyond to try to find formula to feed their children. So, we know that this started as a result of contamination concerns at Abbott Nutrition, which is a huge manufacturer of baby formula. Um, Yes. And so, we do know the White House says they are working with large manufacturers to ramp up production. Is it going to be enough? And how bad is it going to get? And who is being impacted the most? I want I would love to know. I know it might be a little too soon, but we have seen women of and mothers and and fathers for that matter of all colors, you know, talk about this issue. But I would, you know, I'm a little worried, you know, about communities of color where resources are already scarce. um, and we need to make sure that if production is ramped up on baby formula that the resources are going to be distributed fairly and equally throughout the country uh, to the site of where the most needs, sites rather of where the most needs are.
0: You know, I think this goes a little deeper. So here's, I want to take us back. Uh, there was a hoarding, as you know, many things were hoarded back in 2020 uh, around time for the pandemic. So People, for whatever reason, obviously, they weren't able to go out, so they were hoarding baby formula. Well, then the demand for the baby formula dropped down. So, of course, suppliers cut back production through 2021. So now they need more formula. But here is the issue. I think more than the baby formula being ramped up here, there is there was an FDA regulation of formula that says uh, because there's baby formula that comes from other places, of course. Uh, the stuff in Europe is illegal to buy because of technicalities like labeling requirements and all of those kinds of things. But there are some that do meet the the requirements of the FDA, but it's less and, and I and I I'm gonna go out on a limb here, but it's about trade. The US policy restricts the importation of formula that doesn't meet the FDA requirements, right? Mm -hmm. And under the former U.S. president, remember when we got rid of the new North American, that North American trade agreement and the former president got rid of it? We don't want to do any of this trading. They actively discouraged trading. We could be there was a lot of trading going on with our closest trading partner, which was Canada. Canada, there were opportunities when we we didn't realize economists said it. Pundits talked about it Um, when, when we ended that agreement there were people that said it would have implications that would go on for years and years. This is one of the implications. It's formula policy. Yes, there were issues with um, the companies here. Yes, we need to ramp up uh, this production, but we wouldn't be in this place if we knew how to play well in the sandbox as a country and didn't come in before making sweeping changes like trade agreements, going in and actually doing the investigation to ensure that... Things like this may not happen. I mean, think about it. One of the other things that happened, and I'm going to go back again uh, during the administration before, which was the Obama administration, um, not the most recent, but during the Obama administration, there was the like a a task force. And I forget the name of it, but there was a task force that specifically dealt with pandemics. Do You remember that task force Mm -hmm. that the president had set up and brought in people one of the things that the former president did was to abolish that task force when he came down. Yeah. And you can look at history and see that almost every 100 years there's some kind of major pandemic that happens, right? We can look back throughout history and see that. Right after the task force was abolished, here comes COVID. And so and it's basic business. When you come in, you don't make sweeping changes. You take a look, you assess, and then you make a decision and, and you can't make these snap judgments. And we see this baby formula shortage while it is a sad thing, while it does bring so much stress, while it does stress our system um, of, of, of how we, you know, of healthcare of of uh, families and, and family planning and all of those things at the end of the day. A lot of these things could have been prevented if people would have just come in to see what was going on before making decisions.
1: Well said. Well, thank you both very much for your insight. Once again, our guests today are Black Information Network News anchors Rahman Johnson and Nia Clark. This has been a production of the Black Information Network. Today's show was produced by Chris Thompson. Have some thoughts you'd like to share? Use the red microphone talkback feature on the iHeartMedia app. While you're there, be sure to hit subscribe and download all of our episodes. Follow us on all social media at Our Daily Story Podcast. I am your host, Ramses Ja. Join us on Monday as we share our news with our voice from our perspective, right here on Our Daily Story.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No
2: matter who you are,
1: important
2: information.